Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning. We are doing a thing this summer where we're really talking about how do you encounter God even in extraordinary ways? Um, Not too long ago, I woke up from a a dream where I heard the voice of the Lord say, I do not, I do not support, I do not resource institutions. I only provide for my mission. And I remembered so clearly that when he called me here 18 years ago, he said, the mission is to minister to my presence in the midst of Rockland County. And that if we would minister to his presence, that in his presence, there's a fullness of joy. Now, the issue for a lot of people is they think about God's presence mostly as an issue of of his omnipresence. And what I'd like to just talk about for a few minutes is every account, nearly every account of great revival, of where God moves in a region, it always includes comments about his manifest presence. The biblical terminology for the manifest presence of God is the outpouring of his spirit. So what is the chief evidence that God has manifested his presence? Well, it's namely that people get the capacity to experience God's God consciousness. This is really the difference between his omnipresence, his everywhere presence, and his manifest presence. Now, why is this so important? Well, first, personally, scripture says that calling on your life is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of the presence of God in such a way that you become acutely aware or conscious of his presence, where you have the capacity not just to know that God is everywhere present, but you actually begin to experience intimacy with his presence. Now, what happens is that if if at least, let's say, 30% of you in this room really are living in an acute awareness of his presence, it will transform everywhere you are. We don't, 70% of you can go to sleep right now. It's all right. <laughs> I need 30%. I need a tipping point so that not only are you personally affected, but his presence begins to be conscious in your family. His presence begins to be conscious where you work. And then the community begins to be conscious of his presence. We we, we don't need more programs. I like programs. We don't need more programs where there is no consciousness of his presence. You're not called to simply read the Bible. You're called to encounter the God of the Bible. You're not called to pray as a ritual or or even just as a discipline, you're called to encounter God in such a way that you're conscious of him when you're communicating with him. Otherwise, it's not really prayer. And so what I'm asking of us during this summer is that we would devote ourselves to becoming conscious of God's presence. Now, 
We're going to do some things like over the course of all July, we're going to talk about incredible encounters with God's presence. And we're going to learn the patterns of how God draws near to those who draw near to God. But we're also going to spend the time in August, even like this uh, Carol was talking about Thursday night, we are as a church going to devote more and more time to worship and to prayer. August, we're going to spend the more of the service in worship and prayer. We're going to do like the three songs we do, time of prayer, and then do two more songs, and then talk about for about 15 minutes, how do we encounter God? What did God do as we encountered him? Because I want you to, I want you to understand something. You encounter God more with your right brain than you do your left brain. But your right, left brain has to engage and say, this is God. This is his word. This is who he is. Because you have a, a safeguard so that you just don't go off into directions that are not God. And so we want to experience through worship, through singing, all of these things. We want to experience an acute sense of his presence. Because if you and I will do that, everybody will be affected powerfully. In his presence is the fullness of of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forever. I want to bring that for my family. I want to bring that for my community. I want you to do that. I need about 30% of you to say, I'm committing to be acutely aware of the presence of God. Now, the presence of God doesn't simply happen when things are going right. As a matter of fact, anytime that you're anywhere, God is everywhere present. But even though this is an actual fact, many people are not aware of his presence. God is not in their thoughts. But when God manifests his presence, everyone in the vicinity becomes aware of the presence of God. In the New Testament economy, the manifestation of God's presence is spiritual, not physical, but it is just as real as if it were physical. The manifest presence of God makes everyone with a spirit Every human being, saved or unsaved, conscious of God. This is what we're going for. So think about this with me then. You have to have a biblical perspective on spirituality. And the biblical perspective on spirituality is very unique. It is not a spirituality where you're reaching out toward God. When I'm talking to you about consciousness of God, is your prayer life, your spiritual life, is a response, not an initiation. You are realizing God has already spoken. You're realizing that God has already acted. Now, there are a lot of people I meet who pray, and they pray either out of demanding and deserving, or they, meet, they pray out of, uh, out of begging and desperation. Neither of those is biblical spirituality. You do not have to wake God up. You don't have to try to get him on your side. Nor are you a person who says, I can demand of God. Neither of those are biblical spirituality. But if you've, if you've been around a while, you start to realize there are a lot of people who will say they are spiritual. And the, the idea of spiritual is I, as a person, am reaching out to God. The biblical idea of spirituality is God, as a person is reaching out to us. Our job is to respond. We're not directing God. We're responding to God's direction. 
And the, the more that I, that I disciple people, teach people, what I see is we have a tendency to inflict God with our views instead of live with God in his revelation. Yes, sir. And so what happens a lot of times is people are basically looking for a God who is no more than an imaginary friend. And so what, what you and I have to realize, even as you are here today, and you can certainly resist because you are a person, but God has come to you today and he is asking you to respond to him. And whatever he is coming with is the most important thing in your life right now. It may not be the thing you think is the most important, but then you haven't always been right, have you? And so he knows what's the most important thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at people today, next Sunday, we're going to look at people who encountered God and by encountering the presence of God, their entire lives were changed. And so here's what I'd like to do is start back with Abraham again. So we go back to Genesis chapter 18. Now, <clears throat> in this teaching today, I owe a lot to a, a commentator, a brilliant Hebrew commentator by the name of Robert Alter. His commentary on Genesis is amazing. And, and also some, some studies that I did in a teaching that Tim Keller did on this passage. Now, here's the... Here's, the way I look at things is I get my ingredients from everywhere, but the recipe is all mine. Now, I actually stole that line from Lisa, so. <laughs> but I thought it was so good, but I did give her credit, all right? I did give her credit. So will you read the scripture out loud with me? This is Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day, he looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on. Sure, you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you said. Now, this passage is one of the most remarkable passages because we see these three individuals who come to Abraham's tent, and they're strangers to Abraham, and in the Middle Eastern custom, as they come, he must give them the hospitality of his tent. But as he's doing so, he realizes one of them is the Lord. The Lord has appeared to Abraham in human guise. Now, this is, this is, this is amazing if you think about it. You see, this is telling us how the Lord's going to save us even long before Jesus comes. So here in the five, first five books of the Bible, God is revealing that he's going to incarnate as man and that through this, the salvation is going to come. Why do I say this? Because many of my neighbors are Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox, 
they read this, they devote themselves to these scriptures, and right here in the scripture is Christ already appearing. Now, as I explain this story to you, you're going to see how it has to be Christ and can't be anybody else. Now, there are, there's Jesus, the pre-incarnate son of God who comes to Abraham in the human form, and there are two angels. And so as we see this encounter, this extraordinary encounter with God, face-to-face, man-to-man, Abraham's prayer is remarkable, but Abraham's prayer is a prayer that you can begin to learn, how do I intercede? How do I ask for what I need in my life? So here's the first thing that has to happen, is you have to realize that if you are being moved to pray in any situation, God is initiating that prayer. You don't have to beg him to answer. You don't have to beg him to listen. He invited you before you ever responded. You can always have confidence that he is listening. As a matter of fact, your unbelief that he's listening is a hindrance. Instead of being unbelieving, you begin your prayer by going, I know you're here. I know that you hear me. I know that you care. And if your prayer is not characterized by that, but rather begging him to do what he's already promised to do, you're, you're wasting emotion that could be used much more powerfully. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to do things that don't work. I especially don't like to do them over and over and over again. Many people say to me, prayer doesn't work. No, you prayed in the wrong spirit. You prayed with the wrong spirituality, and that spirituality doesn't work. Prayer always works. But you have to realize there are wrong ways to pray, and there are prayers that get a hearing. And Abraham's prayer is a prayer that gets a hearing. And the first thing is that it has to be responsive prayer. And uh, verse 17, the Lord tells the others, the other two, the two angels, he says, should I tell Abraham about what I'm, uh, about what I'm going, what I'm going to do? Now, do you, have you ever had this happen where somebody says, I have a secret. Should I tell you or not? I mean, the minute they say that, right, they're going to tell you one, they want to, right? Two, you want to hear it. And if they don't tell you, you're going to kill them. I mean, you know, are you going to, Tell me. And so this is, this is one of those ways that you've got to see how wonderful the Bible is because it's so accommodating to us. Here is the Lord of glory, and he's asking the angels, should I tell Abraham this or not? Do you understand he's piquing Abraham's attention? Can I, can I just tell you that so many people pray such horrible prayers? And the reason is they pray all over the map. They pray about everything, even things they don't care about. Do you know what God's doing here? He's saying, Abraham, I want you focused. I want you to concentrate. Can I I give you an image? When you pray, there's a wall between the answer and your prayers. Your job by praying is to take down the wall because the answers are there. Now, are you going to use a sledgehammer or a fly swatter? 
And when I go to churches and hear them praying, they're praying flyswatter prayers. I watch HGTV. They don't take down walls with flyswatters. And they don't hit all over the place. You know what? When you take down a wall, what do you do? You hit till you get the breakthrough. You understand? If you're praying all over the world, you're not getting a breakthrough. You're not even praying. You're just doing something religious. And that doesn't work. Religious stuff is actually stinky in the nostrils of God. He doesn't want to smell it. So he ain't going to hear it. And you and I have got to realize that when he gets your attention, he wants you to stay there. He gets Abraham's attention. He says, should I tell him or not? You understand, Abraham now isn't thinking about the tea he's drinking. He's not thinking about how hot it is. He's thinking about what is it he needs to tell me. And so now he's focused. Now he's concentrated. You see, when you take the wall down, then the glory's on the other side. But so many churches, so many church people pray such sucky prayers. Some, some, I, I actually believe some are not only a waste of time, they're detrimental. Because if you're praying without faith, then you're saying it's possible to please God without faith. Where the scripture says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so if you don't think there's an answer, if you don't believe there's, there's a, a, you know, a solution, a breakthrough, then you're already praying without faith. That doesn't mean you know the solution. It's just you know the God who has the solution. And so Abraham is, is teaching us that we're here to respond. We're not here to make God do our thing. We're here to hear what God's up to. So what happens in the negative is that we're often just praying to ourselves. So we're praying to God, reaching out to him as we imagine him to be. We're praying to God as we hope he is. And then what happens is God puts circumstances in your life that are beyond your faith muscles. And when he does that, you see, he's saying, I'm going to destroy your preferred image of me. And I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to contradict you. I'm going to stretch you. And I'm going to make you change because I love you too much not to let you change. Now, if you can imagine this with me, how big is your comfort circle? So think about the circle around you. Just kind of draw a circle in your mind. How big is your comfort circle? Then I would like you to think, is your potential within the comfort circle or is your potential outside your comfort circle? Now, if you're at least reasonable, you realize your potential has always been beyond your comfort so the God who knows your tomorrow, who has promised you a future and a hope, will not regard your comfort zone to get you to your potential. So he actually has to challenge, contradict, even stretch that comfort zone to where it breaks so that you can get to where your destiny is. 
And all along the way, if you choose to be angry with him for his curriculum, you will lose the vital response of prayer, which brings glory much faster. Prayer is not the cause. The glory is waiting for you. It's already been provided. But prayer is the means of receiving it. You cannot, in some ways, get a gift without receiving it with your hands. In the same way, you can't receive the glory that God has for you without receiving it by faith. And prayer is your expression of your truest faith. You track them with me? So Abraham teaches us how to pray here. And what Abraham does is he prays in extreme terms. Now, what God has shared with Abraham is there is a very wicked city called Sodom and Gomorrah. And what God is sharing with Abraham is that he has heard the cries of the people in the city and that he has come to judge that city. So what we see when this very real situation occurs, we see how Abraham responds in prayer to it. So the first thing I want you to understand is that Abraham's response to God, which you see, it's, it's kind of clear that though, though God is in human form, Abraham still knows he's God. So there's something about this human that's a little different from everybody else. And so he knows this is, this is, this is someone you know, who I can't just trifle with, but he also speaks to him in such intimate, familiar terms. And one of the ways that I see this is one commentator says that as Abraham says his request to God, he goes, would you spare the city for 50 people? He goes, would you spare them for 40, 30, 20, 10? You see, one commentator says Abraham refuses to take yes for an answer. He keeps saying more. He keeps pushing it. He keeps pushing it. He gets aggressive. He is speaking as person to person. And yet at the same time, there's this other element as he speaks to God in such familiarity that he also speaks to God very humbly and incredibly submissive. There in around verse 24, he says, I'm just ashes and dust and I'm speaking to God. So he gets the perspective of who he is and who he's speaking to. But at the same time, it doesn't make him any less confident or bold or any less familiar. And, that, and, and in verse 30, 31, 32, he, he keeps going, don't be angry. I know I'm just dust. I know I'm just ashes. And don't be angry. So he knows that he's not dealing with somebody that he can just trifle with. He's utterly aware as he prays of his own unworthiness and weakness. One of the problems that many people have is that their concept of God is he's like the Hallmark card. You know, he's just here to sympathize and empathize and all of these kind of things. But Abraham had this majestic view of God, but he also has this living feeling of the love of God. This is one of the most important things when you pray. Are you praying to the God who has made himself known? In other words, he is the God who has a right to judge the city. But he's also the God who said, I don't even like one person to be lost. And you have to understand that both of those are true of God, that he's always just. 
and he's always loving. And he will never negate one for the other. But they're both at work at all times. See, Abraham has a God that he didn't make up. It's the God who gave himself to Abraham so that he would know who he is. Now, one of the other things that's so important is you see here that Abraham is in the presence of God, but he's not formal or vague. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but some people, when they pray, they come up with a whole religious language. Oh, God, Lord. I guess it's all British. I don't know. But, uh, but the idea somehow is that when you pray, you're supposed to have this, this other you. You know, I don't think that is something God appreciates. It's probably something he laughs at. Because when you fake it, he's still the God of truth. And he knows you're faking it. And he, he actually understands if you say you, you guys, you all, and you don't have to say thee or thou. <laughs> Thine. I get confused sometimes with the thous and the these. But there's some people that when they pray, they have to pray with these and thous because they think God won't hear them. But you see with Abraham, he's speaking to him as a person. I don't know if this will help you, but it, it, it tends to help me to realize here the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, pre-incarnate, makes himself so available and accessible that he takes on human form. So that instead of speaking to an invisible person, he's speaking to a visible person. And maybe as you're having your morning devotions or you're driving in your car or whatever it is, you realize God is there as a person. Not a thing, not an it, not a force, but a person with whom Abraham talked man to man. Jesus actually said that the Holy Spirit is so real with those of us who are believers that it is as if he himself are physically, is physically present with us. If you and I become conscious of that presence and we begin to speak not into the air but to the person, then what happens is our prayers begin to take on a consciousness of God. And instead of begging, you're believing. And instead of demanding, you begin to get an expectancy. God, how will you do this? One of the biggest things that I could say to you right now is most of us we want a savior from hell, but we want to, do not want a savior from the problems of our life. We actually want him to save us from having problems, but we don't want him to save us when we do have problems. We're actually often very angry that he allowed the problems to even happen. Instead of going, Lord, I'm going through sickness. Save me. Lord, I'm going through relationship problems. Save me. And you begin to realize he wants to be the savior in every moment of your life, not just at the end of your life. One of the biggest religious issues is that we avoid God as savior and expect him to resource us saving ourselves. And you cannot and will not do that. So if you get this you get this kind of 
rooted and grounded in you this personal relationship, you'll begin to understand that you're experiencing with frequency an intimacy with God that matters to you and is protected by you. And what happens is Abraham then can take his intimacy with God and leverage it for the needs of others. You cannot leverage intimacy that you do not have. You can only begin to speak with God in the way Abraham spoke with God if you are already intimate with him. And then your intimacy can be the place that you use to speak about the needs of others. There's this outcry that comes against Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the word in Hebrew for outcry is it actually deals with a city or a group of leaders or people who are oppressing by injustice, unfairness, inequality, um, financial, social, racial, all those kind of things. Outcry speaks to oppression. And so many of us, we get caught up in the Sodom and Gomorrah and the sexual issues there. Yes, there was sexual oppression. Yes, it was sinful. But also there was more than that. There was political oppression, racial oppression, social injustice. All of those things were taking place. And God is such a God that when the oppressed cry out, he hears. But here's this interesting thing. When God reveals the oppression and says, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth, Abraham cries out to God and says, spare them, spare them. Now, some people have looked at this and said, of course he wanted to spare them because his own family was there. Lot was there, Lot's wife, the children. But he doesn't say, spare my family. He says, spare them. And so you begin to realize that his petition is not about saving his family. It's about caring for a wicked city. This is so important that we get this because if, if, if Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked city, then so is New York City. So is New City. So is Chicago, L.A., all of these places. And yet here's this man of God, this man of faith, the father of faith he's called, who says for this wicked city, he says, spare them. Do you, I don't know if you understand this, but the role that Abraham is playing here is a precursor to Christ. And this is such an interesting, this is such an interesting passage because the Son of God in this particular instance has come to condemn a city. But in John chapter 3, where it says, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. What a, you see, I don't, I don't know if I can convey this as well as I'd like to, but God has every right to condemn any and every city. But instead, and he shows in this that he is the Lord of every city because he takes out the most wicked city of its day like that. But that is not his heart for the city. It's not his heart for the people. And if you think about it, if some religious people, if you came to them and said, 
man, that New York City is so wicked. I'm going to destroy it. They go, go for it. Why did it take you so long? But you see, the problem with religious people is they think self-righteousness means they're not wicked. Because you see, if God destroys the wicked, he has to destroy you. If he were to wipe the planet of wickedness, you would be gone too. It's not a little bit of sin. It's that you're a sinner. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Abraham says, spare them. And his heart for this wicked city needs to be in our own hearts. His prayer Focused as it is, has a mission. Are you with me? So how is it that Abraham can have such an outwardly focused prayer life? I think the primary thing that you see here is he can have an outwardly focused prayer life because his prayer reflects his own knowledge of God, his own intimacy with God. See, when he prays, he's not just praying based on the need that he sees, or the desire that he wants, he's praying based on the very character of God. Let's say that you want to see healing. Well, you don't have to beg God to heal. You just have to go and say, wait, you revealed yourself. You are Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. I'm not asking you to do something contrary to your nature. I'm asking you to do what you do. When you're in need, a provision, you don't have to go and beg and say, oh God, please provide for my family. Give me a house or any of these other things. All you have to do is know he is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Can I tell you a stupid story of mine? I believe that so much that that name, Jehovah Jireh, came from when the Lord asked Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac. And he kept saying... Abraham kept saying to Isaac, the Lord will provide. And then as Abraham's hand is stilled from killing and sacrificing his son, there's a ram in the thicket. And that's where the whole thing of Jireh, provider, the ram in the thicket. So the other day, this is stupid, but you'll remember it. The other day I went to Aldi. If you want to save money, go to Aldi. The only problem is I didn't have a quarter for the shopping cart. And, I, and immediately came to my mind, ram in the thicket. And I go, Lord, even in this, you will provide. And somebody goes, do you need a cart? And they gave me a cart. I said, I don't have a quarter to give you. That's okay. And they blessed me with a quarter. And so now, it may be silly, but now every time I'm needing, I go, ram in the thicket. Say it with me. Ram in the thicket. The Lord will provide. See, you're not asking to do what he doesn't do. You're asking him to be who he is. So here's what, here's what Abraham knows. God is just, but his default setting is to save. He is not willing that any should perish. And so when he prays, when he speaks, he says this, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So he's saying, isn't it right of you 
to impute righteousness to the guilty for the sake of the righteous. You see, this is deep, but think about this with me. Isn't it so true that often you're guilty by association? And so what, what Abraham said is, why can't people be righteous by association? Can't the righteous, because of their righteousness, keep the guilty from being destroyed by imputation? This is one of the most beautiful pictures of the atoning work of Jesus before it ever happened. Because what he's saying is, God, you called me, Abraham says, you called me to be a blessing to the nations. You told me that through me, the nations will be blessed. And he he affirms it right here in Genesis 18. Even before there's a baby, he affirms it. And, And Abraham says, I cannot, I will not believe that you chose me because I'm a good guy. (laughs) Up to this point, if you read the story of Abraham, he is a mess. He is a screw up. Everywhere, he almost gets his wife killed numerous times. You know, he's already, you know, slept with the wrong woman, got a son by that. It's going to make the whole world divide into, into one, you know, one group against another. All of this stuff's happening. So old honest Abe is not so honest. I know he he knows that he cannot save, but he's looking for God to save on the basis of the righteousness. You see, I love this story so much because it sets up everything for Jesus. Because it has to be by grace alone. But what Abraham has shown is that God will take the righteousness of one and make it cover the others. But here's the problem. You ever notice in this story, if you know the story, he goes 50, he goes 40, he goes 30, he goes 20, he goes 10, and then he stops. Why is that? Because there's not one righteous person. There's not one. This is why sometimes I get so upset at national prayer days for America. Oh, God, save us because we're a righteous nation. There's not a righteous person in the United States of America. There's not a righteous person in all of North America. Let me tell you, if Abraham was not righteous enough to save God, Sodom and Gomorrah, then you are not righteous enough to save the United States of America. Nor is a prayer the cause of salvation. Just because we pray to God doesn't make the prayers effective. There has to be a cause that the prayers are actually accessing. So Abraham developed a salvation way and yet found no one who could walk the way. So what we see is, yes, one righteous person could have saved all of Sodom, all of Gomorrah, but not till Jesus was their one righteous That's why there is salvation under no other name except the name of Jesus. Because only his righteousness can be imputed to your account and you be considered righteous because of his righteousness. And it's only those who recognize I can't satisfy the justice of God by my own actions, 
But I know that he's a loving God, so therefore his love is demonstrated in the sacrifice of his son, and by his sacrifice, I am saved. The only way God can save a city is if there's one righteous person. And the only righteous person is Jesus. Think about this with me. Abraham was willing to, willing to risk death to plead for the city. But he couldn't save it. Jesus was willing to die for the city. And he was able to save it. Because he could plead the case that Abraham could not. So Abraham has put forth the perfect case. Spare them, not in spite of your justice, but because of his justice. This is this is one of my rock-solid things where I know that you're forgiven. I know that I am forgiven because God will never ask a second payment for what's already been paid. In his justice, you see, he has said, it is finished. It is paid. And if he said it, then he doesn't need another payment. Come on, I'm doing all the work and you guys look tired. Come on, can you not see that? You see, this is how you can leverage your intimacy is you know with rock-solid certainty, I am forgiven. I'm not saved because of me. I'm saved because of him. So Jesus is the true Abraham. He's really the father of the faith. And what we see is he's before Abraham because even during Abraham's lifetime, he appeared to Abraham. But here's the part I want you to understand about prayer. Jesus has earned the answer to your prayers. See, the problem with many of us is we're like, if I pray enough, if I pray right, if I pray hard enough, no, all of that is spiritually wasteful. But if you come in and you say, Lord, you have already earned the answer that I'm seeking. Now, one of the things that he does is he teaches you what to pray. I realize now after 63 years that he always answered the prayer I should have prayed if I knew what he knows. And he has taught me through the answers to learn what to ask for. But here's the thing. No prayer you ever pray merits anything. But when you come in prayer, you come and you say, my prayer doesn't merit anything, but Jesus has merited everything. And you begin to realize every promise to you is true because Jesus is the basis of that promise. You're praying for your family and you're asking God to save your family. You may not deserve the answer to that prayer, but Jesus deserves the answer to that prayer. You may, you're praying for your city, your coworkers, you're praying for your school, whatever it is. You may say, I, I'm like Abraham. I'm not righteous in the righteous enough to save the city, but I am in Christ and Christ's righteousness is enough for every person on the face of the planet. And so you come with a confidence instead of coming with a beggar or poverty spirit. So here's, I hear the music, so I got to finish quickly here. So what am I saying in, in your prayer life? Understand the gospel. You're so broken. He had to die for you and you're at the same time, so loved that he chose to die for you. Instead of seeing yourself as somebody trying to earn your answers, see yourself as a loved sinner, a beloved sinner. Get your prayer life in a place where 
It's extreme, it's bold, it's vibrant. Would you look at your neighbor just for a minute, even if you don't like them, point at them and say to him, Jesus wants a prayer life that is extreme and bold and vibrant. But he also wants a prayer life that is responsive to his word. All of scripture is speaking to you about the love that God has shown for you in Christ. When you really become powerful in prayer is when you start leveraging the intimacy and confidence that you have in Christ then for other people. And their needs become as important to you as your own. And you say, like Abraham, spare them because you spared me. See that? This is one of the truths that people don't like too much. But the humble who admit their evil are in. And the proud who will not admit their evil are out. It gives you a big prayer life. A giant prayer request. My mentor in prayer used to say this. Don't tell me how much you pray. Show me the answers. You evaluate your prayer by the answers. Can you, can you track with me today in this? I'm asking us to be acutely conscious of God. He's he's moving in your life, even in the troubles. If he's disturbing the comfort zone, it's because he knows your potential. But I'm asking you to be conscious of how to respond. Not, Not save yourself, not be angry with God and distance yourself, but to come near and say, Lord, I'm responding, I'm responding. Will you stand with me? Okay, so all of this I've said today, It's totally and purely for my own selfish motivations. No, but it is for one motivation. Uh, We found out that Lisa's cancer is back. And she has a, um, she has a tumor on her stomach, on the outside of her stomach, that is the size of a walnut. So in some ways it's hard to share this because we're just starting the process of dealing with it. And I know for her, it's kind of difficult because she's, I'm a confessionist, she's not. But uh, I have the microphone and she doesn't. So uh, I really feel like I would like to see the whole church praying for her. She has a biopsy on Tuesday. I would like them not to find it there. Now, I believe in medical means. I'm not against it whatsoever, but I also believe in Jehovah Rapha. And so would you join with me and use what we're learning today to pray for Lisa, for Pastor Lisa? Would you do that? Would you lift your hands to heaven with me? Uh, Lord, we want to be extreme prayers. We want to have that sense of our own unworthiness and yet our own belovedness. And so I come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our redemptor, who took our sicknesses to the cross as well as our sins and declare by his stripes we are healed. I bring Lisa's tumor under that covering of the precious blood of Jesus. I speak to those cancer cells and I say wither up and die in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remove yourselves from her body. We stand as a church. We join our faith together that uh, our God is a healing God, our God is an awesome God, and Lisa is is his beloved child. So we stand together and say, tumors shrink, disappear, 
in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.